Amen, Lord, we do rejoice. Rejoice because you have come to us who were held captive by sin and death and sorrow and misery. But Jesus, you have come. You have come and given us reason to rejoice. So we pray now, Lord, in this time that we will spend looking at your word together, that you would speak to us. Speak to us through your word. Encourage us, strengthen us, feed us. Give us all that we need from you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here tonight on a cold winter's night. I promise you the heaters have been running all afternoon. I got here at 3.30 and they were already on and I turned them up even higher. But when it's this cold and it's this windy, these six units are fighting a losing battle. So I apologize if there's a little bit of chill in here, but that will just make it that much harder for you to fall asleep during the words that we're going to share together. So I, I am just so excited. I know we don't normally do a Christmas Eve service, uh, and I know a lot of folks are not here tonight. We're not able to make it. I know there's a few that are joining on Zoom, um, but I just, I, I love singing praises to the Lord for his birth. It's just so powerful to remember. You know, and, and most of us have been celebrating Christmas our whole lives. Maybe not all of us, but a lot of us. And so it's easy to kind of forget just how incredible it is. He left everything. He left everything for us. Amazing. We should be rejoicing. Sometimes I feel like we just can't sing loud enough for all the good things that the Lord has done. Well, probably many of you this week have been looking at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 because in those portions of the scriptures we find the accounts of Jesus' birth Luke actually gives a detailed description of events leading up to the birth of Christ, including the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah, the birth of John the Baptist, and then, of course, the visit of the shepherds. Matthew also tells of the incredible birth of Jesus Christ, but then he speaks of the visit of the Magi. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a couple of verses from Luke chapter 1. And then we're actually going to spend most of our time just looking at a couple of verses from Matthew chapters 1 and 2. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to read just verses 67 to 70. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 70. And this is actually a pretty incredible aspect of the, the birth story of Jesus. Zechariah, many of us know, was actually the father of John the Baptist. And before the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she was going to give birth to Jesus, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to announce that his wife Elizabeth was going to give birth to John the Baptist. And at that moment, it was too, too wonderful for Zechariah to believe, so he doubted. And Gabriel got a little fired up and said, well, because you doubt the message that I'm bringing you, you are going to be unable to speak until these events come to pass. 
So in the portion of Luke that we're going to read, John the Baptist has been born. And now for the first time in nine months, Zechariah is able to speak. It says, the father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets long ago. And that's what I want us to consider tonight. As he, the Lord, said long ago through his holy prophets. See, the birth of Jesus Christ was not an idea that God had at the last minute. It was not something that he pieced together when he saw sin and things in creation were not going as well as they could. The coming of Christ into this world was something that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had planned from all eternity past. And at that perfect moment, Jesus came into this world. But for centuries and centuries before Jesus actually came into this world, the prophets of old spoke of the things that would take place. And the things occurred around the birth of Jesus just as the prophets had spoken. So what I want us to do tonight is to consider from the Gospel of Matthew chapters 1 and 2, some of the things that the prophets spoke and how the birth of Jesus Christ fulfilled those things. So turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. John Kohler was here a couple of weeks ago and he preached about the scandal of Christmas. Mary was engaged to be married to her fiancé Joseph. And before they had come together, she was found to be with child, which of course was an incredible scandal. And it says Joseph was a righteous man, and he did not want to publicly shame or disgrace her, so he was going to divorce her quietly. But before that could happen, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and explained to him what was going on. Because obviously, nothing like this had ever happened before. And as the angel is explaining these things, Matthew makes sure that we understand that this was happening just as one of the prophets of old had foretold. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, many of us may know that this is actually a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And what was going on in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 was a national crisis. Jerusalem was under threat from three different enemies. From Israel, the northern kingdom, from Aram, and eventually from Assyria. And it wasn't clear whether the people of God were going to survive. And the prophet Isaiah went to a, king, a, to a king at that time, Ahaz, who was not a very righteous king, not a very good king, and said, ask the Lord 
for a sign. Because the Lord is promising to you that you will get through this. And Ahaz says, oh, no, no, I wouldn't dare ask the Lord for a sign. Outwardly being quite pious, but probably doubting the veracity of what the prophet Isaiah was saying. Isaiah says, isn't it enough that you weary people? Are you also going to weary God? And God himself is going to give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and she will give birth to a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. So some 800 years before Christ was born, God was promising to his people that in the midst of threat, in the midst of crisis, God was going to be with them. God was going to be present in everything that they were facing. And Matthew is telling us that the birth of Christ is God continuing to declare that message to his people. Whatever we are going through, God promises that he is with us in the midst of it. Whatever crises we are facing, whatever threats we are facing, whatever uncertainties we are facing, the birth of Jesus Christ reminds us that God is with us. He's not going anywhere. At the end of his earthly ministry, just before Jesus was taken up to the Father, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The birth of Jesus Christ began with Emmanuel, God with us. The return of Jesus Christ to his Father was Emmanuel, God with us. And so the message of the birth of Jesus is still the same for us. That in whatever we are facing, God is with us. Let's jump down now to Matthew chapter 2. Jesus has been born. And a group of magi, sometimes referred to as wise men, occasionally referred to as kings. These would have been court counselors, probably astrologers, maybe even sorcerers. Not the kind of folks that you would expect to be worshiping the Lord, but God revealed himself to them. So they make their way to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, a king, sort of sub-king under the Roman Empire, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? And it says Herod and all of Jerusalem was greatly troubled at this disturbing news because what king had been born? It was not a king that they knew about. And so Herod called together some of the Jewish leaders, some of the Jewish scribes, some of the experts in the Jewish law and ask them, you know, where is the one who God is going to send into this world? Where is he going to be born? So let's pick it up now in Matthew chapter 2, reading just verses 5 and 6. So this is the answer that Herod was given to his question, where is the Messiah going to be born? Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. 
So for many of us, we are quite familiar with this because we know that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem. Because David was originally born in Bethlehem, and because Joseph was in the line of David, when that decree went out from Caesar Augustus for all the Roman world to be taxed, Joseph with his pregnant wife Mary made their way to Bethlehem because that was his lineage, that was his heritage. And this prophecy actually comes from the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And what the prophet Micah spoke was somewhat incredible. Because what he actually said is that, Bethlehem, you are the least among the cities and the towns of Judah. Bethlehem was not a, a thriving metropolis. Bethlehem was not a, a big, grand city. In fact, Bethlehem was in the outlying area of Jerusalem. So from a natural standpoint, it would have made a lot more sense for Jesus to be born in Jerusalem, in the Jewish capital, or possibly in Rome, because the empire of Rome was ruling all of that part of the world at that time. But instead, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a relatively small village. And it's interesting because the way the prophet Micah prophesied of this event, he said that, Bethlehem, you are the least. You are the smallest. You are trifling. You are easily forgotten. And what Matthew does is actually puts a no in this verse. Because instead of saying, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are least among the rulers of Judah, that's actually how Micah spoke it. Matthew says, you are not. Now, Matthew is not making a mistake. Matthew is not changing scripture. Matthew is not contradicting what Micah said. Matthew is giving us an incredibly profound spiritual principle. Outwardly, Bethlehem didn't look like much. Outwardly, Bethlehem was pretty small, relatively insignificant. But now, because she became the city, the town, where the Savior of the world was born, she would be forever remembered. We all know Bethlehem. And what Matthew was actually saying is this is the way that the Lord regularly operates in this world. He does his greatest, most amazing, most incredible deeds, oftentimes not in ways that the world will recognize. He doesn't do it with human fanfare. He doesn't do it with human glory. He does it in a way that the world completely misses, completely overlooks. But we understand that the glory of God is revealed in that. So, of course, from a natural standpoint, Bethlehem was small and relatively insignificant. But from a spiritual standpoint, Bethlehem was the place that the Savior of the world was born. So another thing that the birth of Christ teaches us is that God doesn't need a lot of earthly wisdom 
or wealth or glory or recognition or fanfare or power to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need any of that. The birth of Christ reminds us that all God needs is himself. He doesn't need any assistance from what humanity can contribute. God alone can bring about his purposes. God alone can accomplish his redemption in this world. And he alone has done it. So Bethlehem reminds us that Jesus didn't come into this world in a humanly glorious way. He came into this world very simply in a very small village, but it was the salvation of the Lord nonetheless. Let us continue to look at Matthew chapter 2. There's actually five of these. I'm working my way through these pretty quickly because we don't want to keep you here too long. So the third occasion in these opening verses of Matthew, where Matthew specifically indicates that what had been spoken of by the prophets long ago was fulfilled when Jesus came into this world. So let's jump down to Matthew chapter 2, looking at verses 14 and 15. Well, just to make sure we understand how the story has unfolded, the wise men make their way to Bethlehem. They find the baby Jesus. They lavish on him their extravagant gifts. Herod had said, hey, as soon as you find him, tell me where he is because I want to worship him. But of course, what Herod actually wanted to do was to kill him because Herod didn't want any rival to his throne. And the wise men being warned in a dream went back to their country a different way. And then Joseph also was warned in a dream that Herod was going to be seeking the life of the baby Jesus. So the angel told Joseph, get up and take the baby and his mother and go down to Egypt. And so Mary and Joseph and the newborn baby Jesus, without any of the advantages of modern travel, made their way some 150 to 200 miles into the land of Egypt. And of course, eventually, Mary and Joseph and Jesus would return from Jesus. Or excuse me, return from Egypt. And so in chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 14 and 15, this is what Matthew had to say. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So again, Matthew is telling us the events around the birth of Jesus had all been foretold long ago by the faithful prophets. We've already seen a passage from Isaiah. We've already seen a passage from Micah. This, this quotation, out of Egypt, I called my son, is actually from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord is actually remembering the history of the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And using the prophet Moses, the Lord called his people Israel, his nation, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And there are times in the Old Testament where the Lord refers to the nation of Israel as his son. 
This is one of those places. So the Lord is remembering. Lord is remembering back to that moment when he redeemed his son, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if we were to go on and read more in Hosea chapter 11, it's not a very encouraging recounting. Because what the prophet Hosea goes on to say is repeatedly, Israel was cried out to, Israel was warned, Israel was sought. And the more that the Lord sought Israel, the more Israel turned their back on the Lord. It says they worshiped the Baals, they worshiped the false gods. So as the prophet Hosea was remembering that, that glorious redemption of Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, the prophet Hosea was also remembering that Israel was a disobedient son. Everything that God the Father had asked his son, the nation of Israel, to do, they failed. They failed. And unfortunately, that's the story of Israel on the pages of the Old Testament. So as Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus make their way down to Egypt, and once King Herod dies and they make their way back, prophet was saying the life of Jesus will mirror the life of Israel. And of course, Jesus will be a perfect son to his father. Out of Egypt, God had called the nation of Israel. And now Jesus would come out of Egypt and make his way back to Israel. But he would not be a wayward son. He would not be a disobedient son. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, everything that the Father has asked me to do, I have done. Jesus became the perfect son. In every way that Israel failed, Jesus did not. And he became everything that Israel was not. So another thing that the birth of Jesus teaches us is that even in our failures, even though each one of us is a wayward son and a wayward daughter, each one of us has disappointed the Father. Each one of us has sinned against him. Not one of us can stand before the Lord and say, Father, I've done everything that you've asked of me. Not one of us can. But the birth of Jesus reminds us there is one who has been perfect for us. Jesus has been perfect for us. And the Father is willing to accept us with all of our failures and all of our sins and all of our imperfections because Jesus is the perfect Son. Out of Egypt, I called my Son. Well, Matthew continues the story, and we've got to kind of go back a little bit because what Matthew now puts in front of us is that as Herod discovers that the wise men have tricked him, he becomes furious. And so he does what all evil, wicked, powerful rulers do. He 
absolutely uses his power to do something incredibly awful. And so he calculates from the time that the wise men had told him when Jesus had probably been born. And at this point now, it's about two years have passed. And he orders that every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, two years old and younger, be killed. One of the most atrocious acts of any leader on the pages of Scripture. And so there was an incredible slaughter of every male child two years old and younger in Herod's corrupt and sinful effort to destroy the baby Jesus, a potential rival to his throne. So let's read a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 2. Now let's jump down to verses 17 and 18. It says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is actually a verse from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And the interesting thing about this verse is if you read Jeremiah chapter 31, it is one of the most powerful and amazing series of promises and declarations of hope by God for his people in the entirety of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 31 is the promise of the new covenant where God is going to write his law on our hearts. And so verse 15 of Jeremiah 31 really stands out because it doesn't fit the incredible hope and joy and optimism of the rest of the chapter. It's a verse filled with sorrow. Well, let's quickly unpack it a little bit so that we understand it. It says, a voice is heard in Ramah. Now, most of us probably have no idea what Ramah is or where Ramah was. Again, Ramah was a relatively small town about five miles north of Jerusalem. And at the time of the prophet Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city. Many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were killed, but those that were taken captive, the city of Ramah was used as a staging point for the Judean captives to make their way back to Babylon in captivity. So for anyone who knew the history of Jerusalem, for anyone who knew the history of Judah, the city of Ramah took on a very, very sorrowful memory because it was the place that captives were carried off into captivity by Babylon. Now we see here that a woman is weeping, Rachel. Now we're probably familiar with Rachel. This is Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the sister of Leah, Remember that whole convoluted family mess where Jacob marries sisters and there's rivalry and competition. And, but anyways, along with Leah, Rachel became a mother in Israel. So of course, by the time Jeremiah is speaking this prophecy, Rachel has long since died. But she was seen as a mother of Israel. 
So this is a very powerful and poetic way of indicating that there was mourning and weeping because the children of Israel were being slaughtered and taken into captivity. And again, within the context of Jeremiah 31, this verse really stands out because the rest of Jeremiah 31 is full of just incredible hope and promise and, and, and great joy of what the Lord is going to bring. But verse 15 is a reminder that even in the most glorious and joyful of redemptive activities of the Lord in this world, in this life, there is still sorrow. And we see that mirrored in the birth of Jesus. In the birth of Jesus, there's unspeakable joy. In the birth of Jesus, there is unbelievable hope. In the birth of Jesus, there is salvation and redemption available to the world in a way that it was never available before. And yet, right along with that was the slaughter of the infants. Right along with that was the enemy doing everything he could to stop the redemptive work of the Lord. And the truth of it is, until Jesus Christ comes again, the return that we're all hopefully, excitedly, and expectantly awaiting, the enemy will continue to rage. The book of Revelation says the devil is furious because he knows his time is short. And as followers of Jesus Christ, absolutely, we should rejoice in the incredible, amazing good works of God in this life. But we should never be so naive to think that until Jesus Christ comes again, that the enemy is going to stop. That the enemy is going to stop attacking and doing everything he can to corrupt the good work of the Lord. But of course, what we know from the story of the Babylonian captivity of Judah in the Old Testament is that that didn't extinguish the people of God. The final word for Jerusalem was not destruction. The final word for the people of God was not captivity. Because God had a better purpose and plan. And of course we know that in the birth narrative of Jesus, that ultimately Herod failed. Even though he successfully killed, horrifically killed, a number of infants, he could not stop the salvation that God had brought into the world. And that's the great assurance that we have. The birth of Jesus Christ reminds us that even though the enemy rages, and even though he is doing everything that he can to undermine and destroy the work of God, he will ultimately fail. God cannot be stopped. His kingdom cannot be destroyed. His salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so in this life, we have to weather 
the relentless assaults of the enemy. We have to weather the seasons of exile and captivity. We have to weather the cruel attacks of the King Herods of this world. But the unshakable assurance that we have is that God will win. Salvation will win. The kingdom will prevail. He is unstoppable. That was the fourth. So the fifth and final, probably my favorite in this group. Let us turn now to the end of Matthew chapter 2. Mary and Joseph and Jesus have made their way back from Egypt, but they realize that Herod the Great One of his sons was now ruling in Judea and Samaria, so they were a little concerned about that. And an angel of the Lord told them to make their way north. So Jesus, as again, at most a toddler at this point, still on the move, still traveling ancient Roman roads without any of the, the, the benefits that we have with his mother and father. They make their way to a northern part of Israel, to a region called Galilee. And ultimately to a town called Nazareth. This is why we talk about Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Matthew is making it clear to us that Jesus was not born in Nazareth. Oftentimes, if you were known by a specific region, it was because it was the region of your birth. But Matthew is making clear to us, no. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just like the prophet Micah had foretold. But in fact, he grew up and was raised in Nazareth. That's why it's absolutely appropriate to refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. But let's read the last verse of Matthew chapter 2. It says, And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets... He will be called a Nazarene. Now this sounds very familiar. Thus was fulfilled what was said by the prophet, quoting Isaiah. Thus was written by the prophet, quoting Micah. Thus what was fulfilled, quoting the prophet Hosea, quoting the prophet Jeremiah. So this is identical to what Matthew has said previously. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, here is the problem. That verse does not appear in the Old Testament. You can read the entire Old Testament, and you will not find a phrase or a verse that even remotely sounds like he will be called a Nazarene. I encourage you, read the whole Old Testament and look for that phrase, because reading the whole Old Testament is an excellent thing to do. But... That's part of the challenge that we face now because that, that, that phrase doesn't occur in the Old Testament. Even more challenging, the town of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, as best as we can tell, the town of Nazareth didn't even become a named town until after the close of the Old Testament probably no more than a couple hundred of years before Jesus was born. So the town of Nazareth is nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. And in fact, at the time that Jesus grew up there as a boy, 
The town of Nazareth was probably no more than about 500 people, if even that. So again, very unusual. So what is Matthew getting at here? What is Matthew saying? Thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Well, there's a couple of different things that biblical scholars have done. The word Nazareth sounds similar to the Hebrew word for shoot or root or sprout. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, the prophet says a shoot will come from Jesse. So they say, well, maybe Matthew was doing a wordplay with that. But that seems probably a little bit too obscure to be the correct answer. Some of you may already have in your mind that the word Nazareth or Nazarene sounds a little bit like Nazarite. And in Numbers chapter 6, it says, if you wanted to make an extraordinary or special vow to the Lord, the vow of the Nazarite, to be a Nazir, one who was set apart for the Lord. Here are the things that you are to do. So some people guess that maybe that's what Matthew was referring to. But there's one problem. Part of the vow of the Nazarite was that they were to have nothing to do with grapes. No grapes, no skins, no seeds, no juice, no wine. For the entirety of their life, they couldn't touch that stuff. Well, that makes the Last Supper pretty challenging. That makes the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2 pretty challenging. There's nowhere in the Gospels that anywhere even remotely indicate that Jesus was a Nazarite. Because he was not. So what is Matthew doing? What is Matthew doing? Well, part of the answer may lie in the reputation that Nazareth had at the time that Jesus was growing up there. To say that you were from Nazareth was kind of like saying you were from Camden or from Ohio, Cleveland, although I take that city with pride. I was trying to think of a modern example, and probably the best example I can think of is saying that you were from Nazareth would have been a little bit like saying that you were from Kensington and Allegheny. I was trying to think of what area of our city right now has a really, really hard and rough reputation. It was kind of like saying you were from Kensington and Allegheny. It's interesting because in John chapter 1, Philip thinks he's found the Messiah. And he goes to a man named Nathaniel. Later we learn that Nathaniel actually was from a town called Cana. Cana was just a couple miles away from Nazareth. And Philip says, the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about, I think I found him. Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, who grew up in Cana, just down the street from Nazareth, says, can anything good come from Nazareth. That was the reputation that Nazareth had. If you were from there, you certainly didn't brag about it. If you were from there, you probably tried to hide it. You were probably embarrassed about it. You were probably ashamed about it. And certainly, you would have frequently been ridiculed for it. That's probably what Matthew is getting at. 
because there is a thread in the Old Testament prophets that the one who God would send into this world would be despised. He would be mocked. He would be scorned. He would be rejected. You can find that in Isaiah 53. You can find that in Psalm 22. You can find it in the latter parts of Zechariah. Not just one prophet, but many prophets. And that's exactly what Matthew says here. Thus was fulfilled what was said by the prophets, plural. And this is probably one of the most incredible truths of the birth of Jesus Christ. Is that he... He was willing to identify himself with us. All of our bad reputation, all of our scorn, all of our shame, Jesus, by coming into this world, by being born into this world, was willing to identify himself with us. That is the power and the beauty of his coming into this world. All of the shame and the disgrace and the scorn that we carry with us because of what we have done, Jesus is willing to identify himself with us in the midst of that and take it upon himself. I've been listening along with my wife to Handel's Messiah a lot over the last couple of weeks. In fact, last Friday, she took me to a live performance at the Kimmel Center. It was wonderful. It's 100% text from scripture set to some amazing classical music. But there's one movement in there that highlights this. It comes from Isaiah 53. He was despised. He was rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's what Jesus took upon himself to save us. That's what Jesus was willing to become to save us. He was willing to be called Jesus of Nazareth. Let me conclude by saying one of the most powerful declarations of Scripture. When God looks at you, in all of your mess, in all of your sin, in all of your failure, in all of the crud that your life has created, he makes an unbelievable declaration. He's not ashamed. To call himself your God. And he's not ashamed to call you his people. That's what the birth of Jesus Christ declares. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we shared earlier, most of us have been celebrating Christmas our whole life. And it's easy, Lord God, to lose track of just how incredible it is that you would freely send your son 
into this world. Jesus, that you would willingly come into this world and identify yourself with us. Into the, the grime and the dirtiness of the sin of this life, Jesus, you came. You came. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you were and continue to be the perfect son. Perfectly obedient to the Father. Doing everything that he asked of you, completing in its entirety the work that he put in front of you. And so, Jesus, as we consider your birth, as we celebrate your birth, as we rejoice in your willingness to come into this world, it is impossible for us not to celebrate your death and your resurrection. Jesus, you have done it, and you've done it all for us. And so finally, Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves later tonight, whatever we find ourselves doing tomorrow, family, friends, traditions, presents, meals, all of the, the joyous activities that are associated with this holiday, God, I just pray that in the midst of all of that, we would remember that we would remember what you have done and everything that it means for us. And so, Jesus, we thank you and we worship you. Amen.